Well, good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, um, new title, CEO. Um, yes, that's, that's something. Must be in the air. And we just thank you for joining us here at the Central Library, and we're really pleased that all of you could be here for the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Lecture Series. And if you didn't get a chance to find out about the Lecture Series, we have um, some brochures about it, and of course tonight's, we're so pleased that tonight's uh, author is part of this wonderful series endowed by Eddie and Sylvia Brown. Now, we're very excited uh, to have our special guest, New York Times correspondent Helene Coper. And I just have to um, mention that her mother is here tonight, and she probably didn't want me to mention it, but she is here, and family members and her sister and other family members, and we just want to welcome all of you here, and are so glad that you could be here uh, with us tonight. The uh, Compass just came out, and that's our uh, newsletter that gives other events, and so we hope that you'll get a copy on your way out. have to have a um, commercial for that. And to let you know that our annual book sale is not far away. It begins Friday, December 5th through Sunday, December 7th, and it's a good time. And with these uh, challenging economic times, a good book might be just the kind of holiday present that people uh, might be more interested in this year than ever before. But without further ado, we'd like to introduce uh, our very special guest, who's our friend from WYPR. He's a senior reporter and managing editor of WYPR's news department, and his long journalism career has brought him to Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, covering stories from Operation Restore Hope in Somalia to the U.S. military intervention in Haiti. He has worked for Time Magazine, The Washington Times, The Baltimore Sun, and USA Today. So we're very pleased to have him here today. Please welcome WYPR's Suni Kalag. And he'll pronounce it better. Don't worry, I'm, I'm like George Foreman. Call me old, call me bald, call me fat, just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> and I'm glad they didn't call us for dinner late tonight because as soon as I walked down the halls and I smelled that great West African food and it brought me back to the first time I went to Africa which was in 1980, June of 1980 which was not too long after this young lady uh, began her journey uh, which started uh, out of a national trauma and um, reading the book brought back a lot of memories because when I went to Sierra Leone the first time two months after uh, the, the first coup in Liberia, I met a lot of the people and a lot of the families that she talks about in her book. And I was always looking for something. Okay. Are we all right here? You're so soft. All right. All right. I know I'm in radio, but I, I am soft-spoken. <laughs> but I, uh, I was looking for a book like this, and it, it, I don't believe in coincidences, but about two weeks ago, I was looking through Amazon.com, and I saw this book advertised. So I said, let me go ahead. I clicked on the book, and you know, you can read samples of the book. So I read a couple of pages and said, you know what? I'm going to put this book in rotation. You know, another week, I'm going to go to the bookstore, and I'm going to put it in rotation. And Well, I, got, I read about three or four books at the same time, so this was going in the rotation. So I... Uh, so I got the call from uh, from the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and they said, you know, well, Helene Cooper's coming here. Would you like to introduce? And I said, do I get a free book out of this? And they said, yes, you do. And um, one of the things I like about reading other the work of other journalists, uh, they're not academics. And, you know, what we try to do is we try to make it easier for you to read and easier for you to digest. And even though I was working working full time, I read your book in about two and a half days. I couldn't put it down, and uh, that's a you know that is a, a, a tribute to you. And uh, uh, not too many books really choke me up sometimes, but when I started reading her book, it took me back 28 years ago, uh, and into that time because I met a lot of the families. Uh, I was telling Helene uh, Nicholas Bright, 
who worked in the president's office. I met his son, Thomas Bright, right after the right after the coup. And a lot of people did not recover. I mean, in some in many senses, Liberia has not recovered. And Liberians are trying mightily to recover. And I think that her book is about triumphs, overcoming adversities that she overcame, that her family overcame. And, you know, one of the things I liked about reading the book when she was with in Providence, and, you know, she poured her soul. She poured it out into a very, very personal story. And that's really what sent her on her way to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And I've been reading your byline for years. And I did, couldn't put a, couldn't put a, I could not put a, a face with the byline. And, you know, we've been to some of the same places. I think I just preceded you in a couple of them. And well, you, you're so much older. I am. <laughs> I am. I am. But it's, it's, good, it's good to finally put, it's, it's good to finally put a, a face with the name and a beautiful story. And I hope this is the first of many books that you will write and that we will read. So without further ado, Helene Cooper. Thank you, Suni. That was awesome. Uh, I just found out that uh, Suni apparently is uh, really good friends with my boss and the boss of uh, my colleague over there at the New York Times, Scott Shane. He worked with Doug Gell in Cairo. So we can find out a lot about where some of Doug's bodies are buried uh, before we go to work tomorrow. Um, it's really good to be here. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'm kind of nervous because I'm sort of a, I've had two glasses of wine, but I also really I'm used to as the diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times talking about foreign policy and about you know trashing whatever the administration is doing. Um, I'm not so used to standing up here and talking about myself. Uh, so please uh, bear with me. But it's great to be here, uh, uh, and thanks so much to the Pratt Library for the fabulous Liberian food they actually found out how to make jollof rice, which I still haven't figured out how to do. Um, so thank you, thank you very much. Um, about eight years ago, uh, on a really hot uh, August afternoon, Friday afternoon, um, a few friends of, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time in the Washington office, and a few friends of mine and I uh, busted out of work early, and we decided to head over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge uh, to get crabs and cold beer. And we ended up in Oxford, Maryland at this dive crab shack in um, uh, sitting on the water, and we were very pleased with ourselves. And I mentioned something to my friends as the sun is setting over the water, and I can still see this day so clearly. Um, I said something to my friends about how actually my ancestors were from the Chesapeake Bay area. And they looked at me and they're like, no, you're from Liberia, what are you talking about? And I told them that evening about how uh, my great, 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 great grandfather on my mother's side, Elijah Johnson, was a freed American black in 1820 who got on the first boat uh, that sailed from New York to um, West Africa to found this new country. I told them about how on my father's side, there were four Cooper brothers who got on a boat in 1829 from Norfolk, Virginia and sailed to Liberia. I told them about this whole American colonization society movement of freed blacks that were sent to Africa, partly to get rid of this growing class of freed blacks who were in America. The uh, prevailing view at the time was that you couldn't have freed blacks and enslaved blacks both living in the same country because it would set up a, the wrong, uh, it would give the wrong impression to the slaves and they would think that they could be free too, so let's just get rid of all the freed blacks. Um, I told them about how, ironically, these um, my ancestors sort of set up the same kind of antebellum society in Liberia that they had fled from uh, in the American South. They were very courageous in forming a new country, forging a new country and standing up for themselves, but they also you know, replicated a lot of the, uh, the antebellum South uh, ways and established themselves as the elite that governed the country with the majority of the country, the West Africans making up the rest of the uh, the country, the farmers, the tenants, and, and the servants. 
um, I told them about how 150 years later this entire rule sort of was ripped apart when there was a military coup. My family was targeted and we ran away in 1980. And I told them about how over the next few years after that, I sort of remade myself into uh, an American, eventually becoming a journalist and a reporter with the Wall Street Journal and eventually the New York Times. And when I'm done with my whole spiel, by then, by now it was like the sun had gone down. We're sitting there <laughs> at this restaurant. And my friends, Neil and Shayla, looked at me and they said, why haven't you written about this? And I gave them the same answer that night that I'd given everybody who's asked me that question. It's complicated, I said, because in giving them the Cliff Notes version of my story, I had left out one small detail, uh, my sister Eunice, and I knew that I could never really reconcile my own story or write my own story until I first reconciled myself with the separation from my sister uh, who had been separated from at that point for more than almost two decades uh, when we left Liberia. When I was seven years old, uh, my father and my parents built a big house on the beach in the Atlantic Ocean, 11 miles outside of Monrovia. It was 22 rooms, huge house, and for the first time I had my own room, a pink bedroom. Uh, I was very excited, but I was afraid to sleep by myself at night. I was imagining Hartman and Rogues and Niji and all this other, everything, witch doctors, everything you could possibly imagine coming to get me in my bed. And so my parents went and they found me a sister. They adopted for me Eunice, an 11-year-old Basel girl. My book, The House at Sugar Beach, is the story of how Eunice and I were raised together as sisters. It's the story of my family uh, and how the two of us were separated in 1980. Um, and my decision 23 years after we left Liberia uh, finally to go back and to, to try to find her. So I'm going to read a few passages out of the book, and then we can open it up to questions. I thought I would start with uh, the day that Eunice first came to, to Sugar Beach. Uh, her mother brought her. Um, I was by now eight and she was 11 and a half. She stood with one arm behind her back, holding the other arm. She looked to be about 11 years old. She had a high forehead and huge eyes. Between the pair of them, you could hardly see anything else on her face. She stood with her legs slightly apart, but even so I could tell that she was bow-legged, a plus in my mind, since I longed to be bow-legged too. She didn't look happy to be there. My name is Helene Calista Esmeralda S. Dolores Dennis Cooper, I announced finally taking the depleted orange out of my mouth. I was wearing Wrangler jeans that my father had, had made for me in, in the United States. My name is Eunice Patrice Boole, she stuttered. We inspected each other while Mommy and Eunice's mother and uncle talked. For Eunice's mother, this was one of those things you did because you love your child. She knew that Eunice would have a better shot at life with us than she would living in her zinc shack with her, where there was no electricity, no running water, and no inside toilet. She was struggling to come up with the money every year to send Eunice to school. She had another son and numerous adopted children, strays picked up along the way, to feed. For all that she would miss her daughter, this wasn't really much of a decision. Native Liberians routinely jumped at the chance to have their children reared by Congo families. And in Liberia in 1974, it was the chance of a lifetime to leave a poor family and move in with the Coopers. Eventually, Mommy turned to me. Show Eunice her room, she said. I had no idea what it was like to live in a shack, or even that Sugar Beach's opulence might be a shock to Eunice, but I was more than happy to show off our custom-built house. Deciding to start on the lower level so Eunice could properly appreciate the scope and grandeur of Sugar Beach, I went around the house to the rarely used front door on the ocean side. The door was locked. My face burning with embarrassment, I left her standing next to the porch railing and scurried back around the house to where Mommy and Mrs. Bull were still talking next to the taxi. I raced up the kitchen stairs, ran into the house, and clattered back down the stairwell to the front door, opening the door for Eunice from the inside. You can come in now, I said, standing aside, breathless and feeling foolish. Eunice trailed after me as I turned and walked through the panel tunnel that led to our recreation room. She took in Daddy's bar the playroom with our stereo set, and the toy room with all of his dollhouses, teddy bears, and, and games. 
What down there? She asked, pointing down the hall. That a guest room, I said. That way I sleepy? No, you upstairs. My sister Jenny's to sleep there when she come home from England, I said, adding proudly, she's a binto. This new girl had better be taking note that this was no flimflack family she was moving in with, I thought. We had a sister who went to boarding school in England. Eunice trailed behind me as I glided up the stairs to present to her the middle level of our house, with its kitchen, dining room, music room, and sunken living room. Finally, we headed to the top level, with the bedrooms, bathrooms, and TV lounge. I slid Eunice a sideways glance before I started talking color, Liberian slang for putting on airs by speaking with an American accent. This is my mommy's room, and this is my daddy's room, I said. We continued down the hall. That's my yucky sister Marlene's room. And this, I said with a flourish, opening the door to what would be Eunice's room, is your room. You're across from me, but if you get scared at night, you can come sleep in my room. Eunice just walked into her room and sat on the bed. She looked like she wanted to cry, so I left her alone. Needless to say, we did not get along at first. Um, I think maybe the pressure of knowing that she was supposed to be there for me and I was supposed to be there for her was just too much. Mar- Eunice and Marlene, my younger sister, got along much better. Uh, Marlene loved Eunice, and Eunice loved Marlene, and the two of them would hang out in Marlene's room at night playing their stupid games and jumping around and screaming, and I would be stewing in my own bitter juices outside in the hallway, pissed, because they weren't paying any attention to me. Eventually, it was fear that sort of brought us together. I mean, Eunice was afraid to sleep by herself in that big, scary house up in the middle of the bush as well. Uh, So we both started dragging our mattresses down the hallway at night into Marlene's room, and we figured if we all slept in there, we could protect each other from the Hartman and the Rose and the Niji, who we were sure were coming. Um, And so we sort of started hanging out at night, and Eunice would tell us these scary stories about Niji, the underwater spirits that come and get you while you're in the Sugar Beach Lagoon, and they suck you under, and they take you off to God knows where or the heart men who come and cut out your heart while it's still beating and they take it to make medicine out of it or the witch doctors and I'd be lying in bed with my blanket covered all the way up to here and I'm terrified and I couldn't move and it's like shaking but I was so loving every second of it. Um, We had a really idyllic childhood and working on this book is like amazing how much I enjoyed going back and revisiting it. I had, you know, once we left Liberia. There was so much of my childhood that I sort of shut down and cut off. And when I finally uh, went back and looked, um, it's amazing just how happy I was. Uh, There were parts of writing this book that made me, that were really painful, incredibly hard. You know, going back and looking at the, the painful parts, the day my parents got divorced, the day um, my mom sacrificed herself when the soldiers came to the house and wanted to rape us. Um, The day my cousin, who we called Uncle Cecil, was executed on the beach by firing squad, the day my father died. And I've always dealt with painful periods by just, like, you know, shutting it down and keep going. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, for the first time in 20 years, I was going back and looking. Um, Those were the really hard parts of writing this book. There were also parts, though, that were so great, and it was because I had a really happy childhood, and there are parts of writing this book that just, that I had shut out, and to go back and look at just how happy I was growing up, even though I was in the middle of this political turmoil that was completely clueless about. I was this spoiled little princess, you know, sitting in my big house while all this stuff was happening around me that I sort of was not uh, aware of, but... um, that was sort of going on around me. Um, uh, but anyway, parts of, parts of writing it were really made me happy. Um, Sugar Beach, Liberia, 1979. August 1979 to May 1980. My ninth grade year at the American Cooperative School, Old Road, Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa, encapsulated everything that would be part one of my life. It's all there. The taste of the tuck biscuits, a more buttery, salty version of Ritz crackers that I ate for lunch every day when I walked to the shop across the street from school. The smell of the bleachers in the ACS gymnasium, turpentine mixed with rubber. 
the feel of my green linen blouse that I always seemed to be wearing during the big events of that year, from the Sadie Hawkins dance to the Miss ACS beauty pageant to the night of May 16th when we ran to Robertsville and ran away. All I have to do is close my eyes and I'm 13 years old again. I have one best friend, Eunice, and lots of other friends, a place on the school choir, a permanent seat on the in-crowd trips to the beach on Saturdays, and a crush on Philip Clarence Parker IV. He was simpatico, a word mommy used when she wanted to show that she knew a little Italian, usually referring to good-looking foreign men who had tried to get her to marry them. Philip was definitely simpatico. He was from an old Congo family, the son of Philip Clarence Parker III, a banker who was the treasurer of the True Week Party and founder of Parker Paint. Everyone called Philip PCP, from the cool guys who hung out in front of the shop across the street to the cool teenage girls who all seemed to have crushes on him. I had heard that PCP was some kind of drug, so I always laughed in what I hoped was a sophisticated manner when people said, there's PCP, and Philip walked into a room. He was always smiling. He was fierce, Liberian English for good-looking, five foot eleven with a chocolate complexion and a really cute tight butt and a washboard stomach and one dimple. Yes, Helene, Eunice said one night as I regaled her with Philip's virtues. You're not talking about his smiling eyes. You're not talking about his tight butt. You're not talking about his dimple. Please, please leave people alone about PC. PC was another one of Philip's nicknames, in case PCP was too long to say. We were hanging out in my room listening to my new record player. Eunice and I were both enthralled with the latest disco songs. The song we both loved the most was I Don't Love You Anymore by Teddy Pendergrass. It was dramatic, filled with declarative sentences. In front of the mirror in my bedroom, Eunice and I practiced how we planned to get boyfriends and then sack them. I had no intention of sacking Philip in the unlikely event that I even got him to notice me, but I played along with Eunice anyway. I'm sorry, we practiced saying, tossing our heads. It's like Teddy Pendergrass said, I just don't love you anymore. (laughs) Eunice actually got to carry out our plan. She chose the perfect moment after school as the Haywood kids were milling around with the ACS kids on Old Road. Her boyfriend, James Sirleaf, a fellow classmate at Haywood, was innocently buying orange Fanta and cola nuts at the shop across the street from the schools. Eunice had been going out with James for a whole month, so it was long past time to sack him anyway. He was nice enough but boring, never having much more to say beyond how beautiful he thought Eunice was. Any guy worth his salt would know that's a recipe for getting kicked to the curb. Adding to James's disfavor, Eunice, like me, had identified a new love. Eunice, at the same time that I decided Philip Parker was for me, Eunice decided she was in love with Sharif Abdullah, a wealthy Congo Mandingo boy. Sharif was tall and lanky with chocolate skin and an afro, and he talked in a really low voice as if he was too cool to have vocal cords. He winked at Eunice occasionally when we were at the movies on Saturday, and he asked her to dance at Philip's party a couple of weeks before. They danced one fast record, but that was enough for Eunice. After much practicing in the mirror at night, she was ready for the dramatic encounter with poor James. Still wearing her school uniform, yellow shirt and black skirt, she strode across the street to the shop, trailed by me, Marlene, Vicky, and a few ACS friends. James, come here. I need to talk to you. James never knew what hit him. Before he could open his mouth, Eunice was off and running. It's over, she said. I found true love. Huh? James said. You and me are finished. Please don't be too sad. It wasn't meant to be. James started to talk. Eunice and I had practiced the night before for when he tried to talk. She was spectacular. Stop, she interrupted, holding up her palm in a dramatic stop gesture. In the name of love, I can't take it anymore. It's too painful. (laughs) With that, she turned in a glorious flounce and strode to Fidelis in the waiting Mercedes. We followed, poking each other in the ribs. How fantastic. Meanwhile, around us, the country was starting to fall apart. Uh, A few weeks after this incident, um, a group of enlisted soldiers stormed the executive mansion, disemboweled the president, upended 150 years of this old guard regime, and announced that Liberia was under new management. It pretty much upended my world. Um, My family was attacked. Uh, 
of several family members who were killed. My father was shot. Um, the soldiers came to Sugar Beach, uh, and my mother made a very dramatic sort of uh, stance to protect her daughters, uh, me and Eunice and Marlene at the time. Uh, and we eventually ran away a month after the coup on May 16th, uh, 1980. We left Eunice behind. Um, my mother asked Eunice to come with us. We were running away to the States, and Eunice uh, said no. She was in her last year of school, her senior, and she said she didn't want to leave her mom. I think we all thought that at some point she would come and join us. When you're in the middle of you're in the middle of something, it's hard to go back and look at, you know, what happened when. But it was sort of inconceivable to me. I remember very clearly the night that we left Liberia and sitting on that Pan Am plane um, on the tarmac at Roberts Field. It was inconceivable to me that I would not be seeing Eunice again for so long. Um, we ended up, my mom, me, and my sister, in my younger sister Marlene, in Knoxville, Tennessee, Within the space of a few months, I went from being sort of the spoiled little popular princess at my popular girl at the American school that I went to in Liberia to the suspicious, uh, financially deeply strapped uh, African refugee uh, at my public high school in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, I didn't make friends very easily. Uh, I was completely outraged that the people in Knoxville had never heard of Liberia. I knew where Knoxville was. How could they not know where Liberia was? And I used to hide in the library at my school at lunchtime because I was too afraid to go into the cafeteria and like show to the world that I had no friends to sit with. From my perch in the corner of the Holston High School Library, I either worked on my romance novel or continued my letters to Eunice. My letters were as imaginative as the Harlequin I was working on glowingly describing my new life and my make-believe friends. I painted a story of a life that echoed the American dream as we had imagined it to be from Liberia. My imaginary relationship with Junior Lowry progressed to his escorting me to homecoming. Junior was on the basketball team, and I had made the cheerleading squad. He was always taking me out for ice cream after practice. We had started making out, but he had only gotten to second base so far. I was always turning down dates from other guys who found me exotic. I was trying to stay faithful to Junior. But it was so hard because so many of the boys at Holston were chasing after me. In the real world, Junior was on the basketball team. He was in my geometry class, and he had smiled at me once. Each week, I left my letters on the dining room table, and Mommy mailed them during the day. Eunice could read me like the cheap novels we both loved. Hey, Helen, you know you're not no cheerleader, she wrote back. (laughs) Eunice's letters were written in red ink. She was sleeping at night with a wet towel on her chest because her mother's house had no air conditioning. After six years of living with the Coopers, Eunice was back to being Bassaw, living again with her mother and five other cousins and adopted kids in her mother's small house in Syncor. How do you re-become what you were six years before? Can you erase six years? Mrs. Bull tiptoed around Eunice like she was a fragile flower. Her daughter was used to the best after living with the Coopers. Mrs. Bull felt that she was under pressure to keep Eunice in the style she believed she had become accustomed to. She put aside the plumpest and juiciest crawfish from the cassava leaf in the afternoons for Eunice. Because, she told the brood of stray children who hung around the house looking for handouts, there was now a VIP living there, Mrs. Cooper's daughter. She called Eunice Mrs. Cooper's daughter. Eunice's mother told the other kids in the house to make sure they left the good rice for Mrs. Cooper's daughter. She spent her scarce money on shampoo and conditioner because, she told one and all, she knew Mrs. Cooper's daughter was used to using real shampoo, not the rough caustic soda soap that many Liberians used to wash. Being in Knoxville for me felt like straddling two worlds, There was my physical world with the monotony of going to school every day where no one talked to me and coming home to watch General Hospital with Marlene and occasional trips to Sizzlin' Steakhouse with Mommy. At night, Daddy called from North Carolina with updates about his new job as an accountant with a company in Durham. We could never talk long on the phone, though, because it was long distance and cost 10 cents a minute, unless you called after 11 p.m. When we lived at Sugar Beach, if we wanted to talk to someone, we went to their house. 
Then there was the world in my head, the one in Liberia, pre-April 12th, 1980. That was the world I cared about, the world that I missed so much. That was the world filled with beautiful ripe smells of dried fish and tropical flowers. That world was filled with people I knew and people who knew me. It was filled with a deep-to-the-bone knowledge that I was somebody and I came from somewhere. A world that Elijah Johnson and Randolph Cooper and my ancestors had built from scratch through blood and sweat. I finally eventually learned that the more American I came, the easier it would be to make friends. Um, and I slowly sort of over the 80s shed my Liberian identity. I had always, because we went to the American school in Liberia, I knew how to fake the American accent. And I learned how to sound as if I was basically some not all I wanted. When you're a teenager, all you want is to be like the other kids. You don't want to stand out at all. And in my quest to not stand out, I lost, I ended up losing a huge part of myself. Um, Liberia sort of degenerated over the next few years into sort of the ninth circle of hell. Samuel Doe was uh, uh, eventually killed. Uh, Charles Taylor invaded and launched a civil war that went on for 13 years. Uh, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, not just soldiers, not just men with arms, but women and children were killed. Um, child children were taken away from their mothers and drugs and forced to become child soldiers. Um, watching all of this from Liberia, uh, from the United States, I sort of ended up, the only way I eventually wound up able to deal with it was to shut it down. Uh, my father had gone back to Liberia. My, mother, my, my mom had gone back to Liberia. My father died in Liberia, and then my mother, after the Charles Taylor War, came back to the U.S. And at the point that she came back, I kind of cut off Liberia. Um, in my mind, I think I thought that if I killed off everybody who was still in Liberia, then it wouldn't hurt me when they died, which is, as you can imagine, not, an emotion, not a very healthy emotional way to deal with things. Um, I went on and sort of remade myself into an American journalist working for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I traveled all over the world covering conflicts and strife. I went to Haiti and wrote about the disparity between the rich and the poor without ever bringing to bear any of what I might have been able to add from my own background. Um, I went to Cambodia. I was traveled all over the world, never to Liberia, uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, eventually, my traveling around my wanderlust uh, landed me in the inevitable conclusion, which was Iraq. Um, people asked me if there was a catalyst, if there was a moment when I actually realized that all of my life and career choices made no sense. And it's really hokey to say, particularly given that at heart I'm a skeptical reporter, but for me there really was. And that moment came in Iraq. I was embedded with the 3rd Infantry Division uh, of the 3rd uh, uh, in the Iraq War. So, where's my page? It was dark and we were traveling black without headlights, so the Iraqis couldn't see us. Everyone put on night vision goggles, which made it much easier to see, although they gave the air a greenish cast. I'd never before seen up close the actual bombing of a town and the sight had my heart pounding. An explosion in the distance created a huge fireball. Who did that? I yelled at Chaplain Trogdon. Us or them? We're doing it to them, he said. Nearby, U.S. soldiers lobbed a turn of 155-millimeter shells at the Iraqi troops, about nine miles away. There was frantic chatter over the radio. Do not stop, do not stop, the convoy must keep moving. The message was clear. If the convoy stopped while bombing Iraqi positions, it would become a line of sitting ducks. Then the convoy stopped. For about 15 minutes, we just sat in line in the sand. In the Humvee, no one talked. On the radio, the screaming chatter continued. You must keep moving. Finally, we started moving again. A series of seven deafening sonic-like booms went off just to the left. At the wheel, Specialist Miller started cheering. The MLRSs, he yelled, clapping his hands. We had just used the multiple launch rocket system to fire 12 rockets containing cluster bombs onto the Iraqis. As they landed, fireball after fireball exploded. I tried to drown out Specialist Miller's cheering, 
and the sound of the shelling. My palms were sweating and I was getting overwrought. What must it feel like to be on the receiving end of all of this TNT? No sooner did that thought enter my head than our Humvee burst open into a thundering, violent crash. We were hit. My first thought was no thought. It was pain. A sudden, searing, explosive pain in my back so intense I knew I was mortally hurt. My head was crushed into my spine. I couldn't breathe. There was yelling outside. It took me several moments to realize that I was the only one in what was left of the Humvee. Somehow both the chaplain and Specialist Miller were gone. I had been sitting in the back seat, but now my head was pinned to the steering wheel. There was a crushing weight on my back. Outside, shouting, Get her out of there! The only part of my body I could move were my fingers, which were pinned against my trousers. I felt a warm liquid oozing through my chem suit. Then someone was reaching into the Humvee to touch me. Then another yell. Medivac! Medivac! She's bleeding out! She's bleeding out! I can't move, I yelled. I was slowly realizing that I wasn't dead yet. We hadn't been hit by an Iraqi bomb. A tank, one of ours, had run over my Humvee, crushing the vehicle and pinning me to the wheel. Chaplain Trogdon and Specialist Miller in the front seats both got pushed out of either side of the Humvee as it crumpled. I was not so lucky. Or was I? After what seemed like hours, but was more like just five minutes or so, somebody figured out that since the tank hadn't been so much a scratch, they could just back it up from on top of me. A huge weight lifted off my back as the tank reversed. They pulled me out of the now-crushed Humvee and spread me on my back in the sand. Someone began to examine me. And at that moment, as I lay in the sand in the desert, my chem suit soaked with what turned out to be oil, not blood. I thought of Liberia. I shouldn't die here, I thought. What a stupid place to die. What a stupid war to die in. If I'm going to die in a war, I should die in a war in my own country. I should die in a war in Liberia. I went home after that. Um, I think my decision to go back to Liberia and to look for my sister Eunice is probably one of the, is probably the most important decisions I've ever made. Uh, my decision subsequent to that to write this book is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I think in many ways this is the rest of the story that I didn't tell my two friends that night in Oxford, Maryland, when we were eating crabs and cold beer, uh, and I'm I'm really glad I finally got around to reconciling myself with it. Uh, thank you very much for coming tonight, and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Questions? <laughs> yes, sir. I'm not going to tell you. You're going to read the book. <laughs> what, you think I'm going to give away my whole ending? No way. <laughs> That's always the first question. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't want to give away the ending, so, you know. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You know, Liberia. There's so Liberia is one of those really untold stories. It's so connected to the United States. It was founded by the United States. The United States never colonized anywhere, but they colonized Liberia. Um, and the U.S. in many ways just sort of forgot about it. And so there's an enormous amount. You know, if you'd asked me this question in the 80s or the 90s, I would say, you know, look for ways to donate to refugee organizations and relief groups and try to keep any of your donations or help as far away from the Liberian government as you can. But that's no longer the case. Liberia has, for the first time, elected, for the first time in Africa, has a female president, a woman, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, which is so huge. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you how big a deal that is, not just for Liberia, but for Africa as a whole. For African women, these are women who literally carry this continent on their backs. These are the women who run the economy. These are the market women who are out there selling dried fish on the side of their road and oranges and 
peppers and these are the women whose children were kidnapped and taken away from them and drugged and turned into child soldiers these women were raped by these gangs and marauders all over the place and left in the forest to bear their children and you know put those children on the backs and they kept going and for them for the first time to see a woman elected president is enormous there's so many initiatives that sort of support women in Liberia but support Liberia as a whole the millennium challenge uh the Millennium Development Council that's run out of, Jeff Garten runs out of the UN, has a few Millennium Villages that focuses on getting money into the grassroots level to like build from the, but there's so many other projects as as well that are, that come through the UN and the World Bank, but also through the Liberian government that, that are possible to get involved with. And I think just like paying more attention to Liberia, Liberians love the United States. You know, when George Bush sent 22 Marines over there in 2003. I mean, we sent like how many, how many hundreds of thousands over to Iraq and we sent 22 Marines to Liberia. Liberians were on the beach like cheering when those 22 Marines docked. It's like one of the one, it's one of the few places in the world where, you know, any American president will be welcomed with open arms. Um, and it's always been sort of sad to me that, you know, we cared so much about the United States and it felt like the United States didn't care so much about us. Yes, sir. DSW. Wow. Is that the shoe store? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's about, the population used to be about 2 million. It's been pretty devastated because of the civil wars. Uh, it's down to about 1.5 now, but, you know, that's like starting, and so many have been displaced, and so you have so many more. When I was growing up, there were 100,000 people in Monrovia. Now there are about 600,000, and the, you know, the, the, it's not gotten any more developed than it was when I was, when I left in 1980. One of the weird things about going back to Liberia in 2003 was how much little things had changed. The architecture, it just looked like everything had just stopped in the 70s, except now there were bullet holes and artillery shellings and all the walls and everything looked like it was falling. But you know, anywhere else you go, you see the signs of development or progress. And in Liberia, I didn't see that when I finally went home in 2003. It's an area about the size of Ohio. It's small. It's a small country. But it's on the ocean and it's beautiful. Beautiful tropical rainforests and a lot of great natural resources. Yes, ma'am. We did have we did have a farm. Um, uh, both of my side, both sides of my family. Uh, my my mother, uh, we had uh, there was my the Cooper family farm, and my father also had a farm. But he was also a businessman, um, and he he did uh, various different. But farming has always been a big, you know, that was a big rubber rubber in particular uh, is a big source of Liberia's natural. Yes, sir. Right back. Yeah, because these are like, you, in many of these cases, these are 8, 9, and 10-year-olds. doesn't take that much. It was like amphetamines, it was ganja, it was you name it. Um, uh, and there, there was heroin. You, I mean, it's everything, you know, possible that you can think of. Um, and these kids were taken, in many cases, kidnapped from their families and forced to fight and forced to kill people. Um, and so you have a problem now in Liberia if you've got these former child soldiers who were back and trying to be reintegrated into the population, and how do you make them people again? And that's one of the, the war orphans in particular, but the former child soldiers as well. I was completely taken aback when I got there. Uh, all the There was this Liberian artist uh, who hung out outside of my hotel, and he had been, he was, he was awesome, but he'd been doing these paintings and stuff, and he had been capturing. That's the coolest part about Liberia, I think, is that Liberian people are so full of life. And so, I mean, we crack jokes at the worst possible time. We're completely inappropriate. Um, but this artist is doing these paintings of all the reporters who had descended on Liberia and wanted to find child soldiers to interview. 
And so he has these paintings of these little three-year-olds standing there with their gun and all the press like on the other side with their TV cameras. And it was heartbreaking looking at that because that was in many ways what you know the press was running around there doing. But it was real. It was like there, it wasn't hard to find them. It was so you know they were they were all over the place. As soon as I got there, you know you see them, and it's just it's it's heartbreaking because they're you look into eyes that seem deadened by the sort of things that they've seen and at such a young age. Yes. Has there been a, a, a reconciliation between the indigenous Africans and the ancestors of those who were repatriated since the end of the Civil War? Yes and no. There's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that's underway right now in Liberia that's sort of modeled after the uh, South Africa one. Um, and they've been holding hearings. It's still a hard thing for Liberians to talk about. The reaction I've gotten to my book has been all over the place. Um, I, When I started writing, I chose to write just the way... I, I wanted to write a memoir that sort of laid things bare. I didn't want to write another... A lot of the things that have been written in Liberia in the past really lionized the freed blacks who went back to Liberia. And in many ways, they are heroes. I'm so enormously proud of my ancestors because without them, I wouldn't be anywhere. But at the same time, there's a lot of ambivalence there because they did set up the same sort of society that they had fled from. And so I wanted to lay that out just the way I, you know, the way I saw it. And the reaction I've gotten from Liberians sort of shows me that we still haven't quite gotten to where we're absolutely able to deal with it because from both sides of the aisle, both the the Congo people and the native Liberians, there's some who love the book and there's some who hate the book and think I should be strung up. And I get that from both sides. And so it's sort of, you know, I think it's a good thing to talk about and a good thing to get out there. But, you know, you get 10 Liberians in a room and I bet every single one of them will tell you something different about their feelings about this book. Way in the back. In some places, yeah, and in some places, no. Uh, there are Liberian communities, for instance, there's the New York Times has done a few stories about the Liberian community in Staten Island, where there's a huge Liberian community and a lot of the same stuff. This isn't so much the you know the descendants of the freed slaves versus the native uh, Liberians, but this is lot, there are a lot of different ethnic rivalries in Liberia too between various groups of native Liberians, and a lot of that has ended up being replicated in Staten Island. But a lot of Liberians have already got, have also just gone way beyond that. Um, so it all depends on, you know, where, where you go and who you get. I think Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, in a lot of ways, um, because she is in, she's not from, descended from the freed slaves. Her grandfather is German or something, her grandmother is Gula. And she's sort of a little bit of everything sort of thrust in there, even though she was brought up is sort of in that elite world. But, you know, I think that's a she's she's she could be a good, you know, a good individual to bridge all of this. But you still have a case where you still have, despite all that has happened in Liberia, the vast majority of the wealth is still concentrated in the hands of the not necessarily so much the descendant of the freed blacks, but but concentrated in the hands of the people who were educated. And in a lot of cases, that ends up being the descendants of the freed. So you still have a literacy. There's a literacy education gap there that has, we have a long, long way to go before we actually are able to establish. And that's what we need to be working on is establishing the kind of middle class that will bridge a lot of that. Because until you can get a middle class, you're still going to have, it's like so many of these third world countries that you go to where you have the elites and then you have everybody else. And that in many ways is still a problem in Liberia. Yes, sir.
I've thought a lot about that. I'm a journalist. I'm not a politician. I have zero desire whatsoever to work for any government. Um, never going to happen. Um, what I've thought and what I would like to do is maybe help with training reporters in Liberia. And I've talked to a few people about doing that. But off, as far as and that, you know, go home and, and actually like talk to aspiring journalists and do training programs and that sort of thing. I have not done that yet, but it's something the first thing I wanted to do was I needed to write the book. And I needed to get that done before I started anything else. And now I'm sort of looking for where I could help, but I'm never going to be, uh, you know, in working in the government. So that's never going to not. <laughs> I, I'm really good at pointing out problems. I have zero when it comes to how to fix it. No. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Thank you. Wow, journalism is so, it's such a great profession for people who have like a little bit of interest in everything. I mean, is the news industry is not looking so great right now. So the first thing I would tell your journalism students is, you know, diversify and like really bone up on the web because that's where so much of it is going. But it's the best, I think it's the best thing in the world to do. It's like you get a front row seat to history as a reporter, and I, I love every second of it. There's no other profession that you can actually, still from the outside looking in, you know, see so much about what's going on and, and educate people about what's going on just through, you know, just by telling it the way it is. It's, you know. Yes, Mr. Andrews? It's cool, isn't it? Um, yeah. No, I think, and that's one of the things, no matter what I, there are times I've been so ashamed looking at things, images coming out of Liberia, you know, some of the things that happened during the war. And there are times I've been so proud of being Liberian. 2005 just rocked my world when Ellen Johnson Sirleaf won. And that, again, that's sort of the, you know, in so many ways, so many African countries, you know, coming out of colonialism, went through these, you know, fits and starts and evolved into these dictatorships and went from, you know, colonial powers to African dictators to, you know, strong men and that sort of thing. And, like, the idea that Liberia now, through a purely democratic election, sort of evolved. And I think it's sort of indicative of what you see around the world about democracy. And so many, uh, there's so many times that people have said, you know, like, you know, certain people in Africa or, or Arabs or whatever aren't quite ready for dem democracy. Is sort of this, this low expectation. And that's been that's sort of been shown as to not being true. I think democracy is, you know, at the risk of sounding like, you know, Bush and company, I think democracy actually is this shining beacon. And that where, you know, you sort of get into uh, sort of people who look at the United States and the example that the United States has, and they see us going through our election, you know, our election uh, turmoil, and they see what happens in the United States, and people, you know, want a part of that. If I answer that, I will ruin the book for you. So I'm not going to answer it. I want you to read it, and I want you to enjoy it. Oh, but now you want to ruin it for the people who haven't read it. I'll tell you about it afterwards, you and I in that corner. Okay. Okay. She's been politically active for as long as I can remember. She spent more time in jail than most like car robbers here in the U.S. Um, she, uh, in 2003, Charles Taylor was basically um, forced to leave Liberia. It was the height of yet another war. And he was given safe passage to Nigeria. Uh, West African and UN peacekeeping forces came in, and that was sort of the end. That was a punctuation mark in the end of the 13 years of civil war in Liberia. 
uh, we then went into a transitional government and we had and scheduled elections for 2005. Alan Johnson Sirleaf and a number of other Liberians, including George Weah, the former soccer player, uh, put their hands up to run for president. And the election, there was an election in October of 2005 in which George Weah, the soccer player, was heavily favored. He came in first. Alan Johnson came in second. He didn't get enough votes to avoid a runoff. And there was a runoff in November of 2005. And she um, she won. She won largely because women women in Liberia went to the polls, uh, and she you know that's why she won. That's why I think it's kind of so cool for African women to like actually see because this is still a very paternalistic type you know male dominated society. You go all over Africa, and for people, I had just been in the Congo a few months before Liberian elections, where I'd been just rocketed just by how similar the DRC was to Liberia. It felt so, the same population decimated by years of pointless war and the same type of hopelessness. And I could see these women, you know, with with this one woman, I remember it was like at twilight, walking up the hill next to her husband, and she had all these logs on her back, and she couldn't, I mean, she was bent over. She was about 30, but she looked about, you know, 50 or something. Um, and she's bent over carrying all of these locks on her back. And her husband has nothing in his hand, nothing on his back, and he's exhorting. He's like, come on, come on, come on. And I just, I remember when the Liberia election happened, I wanted to go back and find that woman and say, your time will come to, you know. Was... Yes, sir. Uh, I just heard, you mentioned uh, President Bush, and you mentioned the need uh, that's in Liberia. And I just saw your president in the post asking, um, Bush has been great on Africa. Bush has been much better on Africa than Clinton ever was. Um, I don't know specifically what happened last week when Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was here, but on the establish the establishing the Millennium Challenge Corporation and increasing aid, he's increased aid to Africa uh, by five times since he took office. He started HIV PEPFAR, HIV AIDS programs. Um, he's done so much more. I don't know if it's something to do with, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but Bush actually on Africa, and he was actually just in Liberia in April uh, visiting, and he and uh, Ellen Johnson's relief apparently have quite a rapport. Yes, sir. I don't know if I necessarily agree with your premise. Um, I think people often say that reporters only report the bad news, but the reality is, you know, we're out there to write things as they are. We're not salespeople for the government. We're not public relations representatives either. And so I don't know. I mean, like the Liberia that I grew up with may have been peaceful, but it was suddenly, certainly unjust. And so if there were negative stories or there were critical stories about Liberia, I can't stand up here and say to you that I don't think that they were warranted. Um, I also don't necessarily think that all the press coverage out of Liberia has been negative. But, you know, reporters define our job is sort of we don't write about, you know, it's not a story if it's good. You know, that's the that's kind of the reality of the world that we live in. And. Uh, uh, and a totally objective um, uh, uh, journalistic account of what has happened in Liberia in the last 28 years, or actually even in the last 178 years, would, by necessity, if it's honest, 
includes some horrific, horrific accountings. And that the only way the whole, you know, the point of the press is not to paper over, you know, things and say, you know, it's not, you know, I remember growing up and reading Liberian newspapers and, you know, so many times the story would be, oh, President Talbert met with the president of so-and-so yesterday and they'd establish, you know, said they would have good relations. like complete, it's like it doesn't tell me what was happening. In the, and Liberian journalists actually are some of the most courageous I've ever come across. There's so many in the Liberian press who ended up in jail for publishing, Kenneth Best, for instance, for publishing just, you know, things the way it was. And I would, you know, want to encourage them. I would hate to see Liberian journalists even go back to those days of state-sponsored newspaper coverage when all you're writing about is, you know, covering some handshake between two presidents while around you the whole country is is falling apart. One more question and then... Yes, ma'am. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. All right. I have one Niji question, uh, anecdote, and then I'll end. We were really, really afraid of DGs when I was growing up uh, because they hung out in the lagoons and they sucked you under and they took you off to you know where. And everybody told me, oh, I don't know what you're so afraid of. They don't really exist. You're making it up in your head, blah, blah, blah. And then as I was writing this book, and I kind of believe that, you know, so maybe it's not really true. Uh, I was writing this book, and I started investigating General Butt Naked of the Butt Naked Brigade. Uh, Liberia, Liberia is so cool in so many ways. I mean, we don't fight wars like normal people. You know, we, you know, the rebel soldiers would put on wedding gowns and wigs and have handbags, and it's like so much more creative than the kind of stuff you see anywhere else. General Butt Naked had the Butt Naked Brigade of child soldiers, and they were all they ran their whole. Uh, he went around naked, except sometimes he carried a lady's purse. Um, uh, and though some of his, and some of his soldiers actually had uh, would wear would wear clothes, but the clothes they wore would be wedding gowns and blonde wigs, and they believed this was magic and this would protect them from bullets. Um, General Butt Naked, um, his battle t- attire included sneakers, a gun, and sometimes a lady's purse. Other than that, he was naked. Although his soldiers often wore women clothes, um, he told journalists later that he sometimes swam into lagoons where children were playing dived under the water, grabbed one, and took them away and broke their necks. And I remember reading that um, when I was sort of looking into some of the background history about uh, about the Liberian War and being just really, you know, because I had now convinced myself that the whole Niji thing didn't really exist. And I don't, I'm not going to stand here and say Nijis do exist, but I think the folklore of it led to a lot of some of the more horrific crimes that were committed during the during the war. That's a really depressing way to end. I'm going to take one more question that hopefully will not be. Yes. I'm looking at your, uh, the family tree in the book here, and I'm wondering, have you traced it further back? Have you traced it from the first? No, I've gotten as far as 1789. Um, I keep thinking about, okay, now maybe that's the next book, but God, to spend all that time, I've spent the last five years with my family. I don't know if I want to do another another five. But yeah, it would be really, I would love to trace, it would be great to go back again to Africa and to see where, you know, because they were brought here as slaves, and they were eventually freed, and then they went back to, so going further would be, that would be quite an endeavor. It would be an endeavor. The coolest part about doing the research on the book was when I found Elijah Johnson, my great-great-great-great-grandfather's journal. And this is the journal that he kept when he was on that first ship of freed blacks that went to Liberia in 1820. And I was blown away to see his own writing. I found it through, found it through some offshoot of the Library of Congress. And I was so blown away to actually, because my mom always talked about Elijah Johnson when we were growing up. And we're like, yeah, 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 I found a Liberia, blah, blah, blah. And to actually see that, you know, it, he really did exist and he was actually really kind of cool. Um, reading some of the things in his journal were awesome. And I'll leave you with uh, one line uh, that he had in his journal from, it was like the second week on board the ship. And he said, um, today while we were, he wrote, uh, today while we were up on deck, John Fisher whipped his wife. I think that he is a very dull lamp for me to take with me to a dark continent, but I have not lost faith in my God. Thank you very much. Uh, 
the Ivy Bookshop is uh, in, out in the hallway, and they have books to sell. And if you'd like to have Helene sign your books, uh, you may line up here. Thank you for coming. Let me know which one you like. <laughs>